Good evening, church. We're going to do that one again. It's Christmas. Good evening, church. It's wonderful to be with you all this evening. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and as Simone said, Christmas Eve is this Saturday. Can you believe it? It has come so fast. We're so excited to be at Crazy About You for our sunset service. Uh, as Simone shared, uh, this is a, a fantastic service. If you're in town, bring family, bring friends. It's on the water, right on the boardwalk here in Brickell. We have the whole restaurant to ourselves, and it's outdoors with two-tier systems. And as the service is going on, the sun is setting behind you, or in the, in the other way, because we only see the sunrise here in Miami. But it's setting, and then we end the service with Silent Night candlelight, and it's uh, absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite services of the year. So we'd love to see you, your friends, your coworkers, your family, Christmas Eve, 5 p.m. at Crazy About You. Now I have to ask this, and, and please, let's, let's be people of courage this evening. Who here was going for France this morning? <laughs> Who was going for Argentina? Hey. So I was, uh, this morning I was preaching at Key Biscayne. And I, uh, I, was, uh, I was asking them who was going for France and Argentina. And surprisingly, on, in the island, there's so many people. It's like half of Argentina lives in Key Biscayne. But in the church, there's a lot of Brazilians. So it was like a France watch party in that room. So I didn't tell them that I was going for Argentina because I wanted them to listen to the sermon. But I'm happy. And I've had like four cups of coffee because watching that match, I was exhausted. Like I'm tired. It was, but it was amazing. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic and uh, grateful to have you guys online and you here in the room. So this is episode four of our series, The Christmas Family Tree. And I was reflecting on the World Cup leading up to it this week and knowing it was on Sunday morning. And I was, I was thinking about this kind of phenomenon that happens in the U.S. every time there's a World Cup, or at least in recent history. And that is this. Because there's so much attention around World Cup soccer and around watching it and going to watch parties. Many of you in this room I know have gotten into soccer for the first time in your life or for the first time in four years. Last time was four years ago when the World Cup was on. And that's, that's okay, that's normal, that's common. And there's something that always happens because there's all this attention on soccer. People are learning about teams or learning about players. And then you see a spike in children being put in youth programs for soccer. Did you know that? It happened, like this next semester in January, there's going to be a flood of kids being put in youth programs for soccer because their parents are into it, and they want their kids to play soccer. And it's because there's kind of this new, fresh light and perspective on the sport, and it draws people's attention, and they learn more, and so they want to engage it more. I've also recently not just been watching soccer and being excited about the World Cup, but I've, I've started to dabble a little bit on Twitter. Don't judge me, okay? Some of you are on Twitter. I don't even, I don't ever tweet. I don't know what to say, but I just like get my news and I kind of lurk, you know, on Twitter. But I've noticed there's this thread, like, you know, trend on Twitter. Has anyone else seen this? Where it's like, you should put all of this on a blog, but you're doing it on Twitter and you put the little thread icon and then there's like, you know, 20 tweets. So I got locked into a thread this past week and some of you are going to resonate with me on this. And it was a thread on the director, Christopher Nolan. Do I have any Christopher Nolan fans in the room? Come on. Yeah. Christopher Nolan, for those of you that don't know, he is the greatest director of all time. 
or one of them at least, he's my favorite director. He did Batman series, the real one, the only one that matters. He also directed Interstellar and Inception and Tenant and several other fantastic films. He doesn't miss. And I was reading this thread about him and it was very interesting because if you've seen his films, there's all types of things happening. They're very big productions, blockbuster films, but he prefers to film as much as he can in real life, not animated. So he tries not to use CGI. So for instance, if you can recall back on the Batman film when the semi-truck is going down the street and it flips over in the air and lands upside down, that really happened. That was an animation. Or an interstellar, when they're driving through the cornfield and it's just corn as far as the eye can see, none of the corn is CGI. He planted hundreds of acres of corn and then he sold the corn after the shoot for profit. An interstellar, when they're fighting in the hallway and it's flipping around, he actually built a machine that could house the hallway and spin it in real life and the actors are fighting inside of that. And then lastly, one of his newer films, Tenet, you guys remember the scene where the Boeing 747 crashes into the airplane hangar? That really happened. He really got a plane and crashed it into a building. And here's what's interesting. It was cheaper for him to do that than render it in CGI. Isn't that interesting? But he does it because he believes that filming things in real life, they come through on the camera in a different way than something that's animated. And when I was reading that, I was like, I need to watch all of Christopher Nolan's films. I need to go back. I need to see. It brought me back into the story, and it made me want to watch and engage again these films that I've seen so many times. And I'm telling you this because we're going to look for episode four into a very famous passage in the Bible, one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. If you have spent time in church or if you've read your Bible at all or maybe even passing, you've heard probably about this story. And it's the story of David and Bathsheba. David, one of the main characters or figures in scripture, and it's where he has his great fall, his great failure. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you have the Crossbridge app, you can click on the notes icon and follow along as well. Also, the passages will be on the screen behind me. And I want you to look at this passage with fresh eyes because I want to bring some details and some understanding around the passage to help you to see things that maybe you've never seen before that will give light to what the author is communicating to us and how that actually applies to Christmas. Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what the very first verse says. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. But David remained at Israel, at Jerusalem. So here's what it says at the very beginning. David is in Jerusalem. It's springtime, and the author makes a note that springtime is a time when the kings go out to battle. And all of Israel has gone with Joab, his chief commander, the general of the army. But David is staying back in the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, historically, during this time period, this is what took place with all nations. There was no fighting or warfare that would take place over the winter season because the weather was not you know, it, w it wasn't really possible to fight well, and so everybody was disadvantaged. So all the nations just agreed, when we fight, we fight in spring. 
So in the springtime, all the nations and their kings and their generals, they would get the armies together and they would go out to battle to defend their territory. They'd go out to conquer new territory, and Israel was no different. So historically, every single springtime, David would go out with his army and lead them into battle, for he was the king and the commander of Israel. But this time, he stays. See, it's signaling to you that something is wrong with David. He's not acting like himself. All the kings have gone out, the generals, the commanders have gone out. It says all of Israel has gone out, but David has remained in Jerusalem. It's writing in such a way for you to feel like David is one of the only people that's staying in Jerusalem. He has forsaken his people. He has forsaken his calling. His purpose that God has given him is to lead God's people as king, but also to cultivate a place of safety, to cultivate a culture that is spiritually and socially healthy, And he's to lead, and yet what happens now in the life of David at this point is that he's pursuing his purpose that God has given him through other people. He's like, Joab, you handle it. These commanders and generals, you handle it. I'm going to stay back. I'm going to remain in a place of safety and comfort. And you see that in the very next verse. Here's what it says in verse 2 through 5. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch... Comfort, security, leisure. Everyone's fighting. David's on the couch. And was walking on the roof of the king's house, the palace. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So here's what's taking place. David has remained in Jerusalem. His purpose is being pursued by other people. He's really having other people do his bidding. And while he's on his couch he notices something. There's a few key details there. First off, the palace, the king's place, was the tallest building in Jerusalem and had vantage, a vantage point over all of Jerusalem so he could see everyone and take stock and hold of his people. And this is also a rooftop culture. So all the homes built during that time would have had a flat roof and people would have spent a lot of time on their roof. They're built in such a way to sustain weight on the roof. They'd build structures over there. People would bathe up there, they'd wash dishes up there, they'd cook up there because there was more breeze. And so David is up on the roof of the palace, he's on the couch, he's relaxing, and he gets up, and he walks around to look over the city, it's pretty much empty because everybody's out fighting except for him, and he sees a woman that is beautiful. And the text says that the woman is bathing. Now, it's not simply that she's taking a shower, The actual word there is a word purifying, and the the author later notes what's taking place, that she's actually on her period. She's cleaning herself on the roof in what she believes is privacy, but David notices and sees. And this is a clue because David now knows that she is not pregnant. This is a key detail in the story. So David sees a beautiful woman that he knows is not pregnant. And then he sends some messengers to find out exactly who she is because he can't quite tell. 
So they come back to him and say, hey, is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? Now, when you're reading it, you may think that David just happened to see this random woman in Jerusalem that is beautiful, that is not pregnant, and he's interested and curious, but that's not the case at all. David knows Bathsheba. And the reason we know David knows Bathsheba is because the author tells us exactly who she is. She's the wife of Uriah, and Uriah is one of David's mighty men. There was only a few mighty men. These are the closest people to David, his best friends, the greatest fighters and warriors. They're like his secret service. They would have spent years with him. They would have been around him all the time. David knew Uriah well. He was one of his best friends. And he knew his wife, Bathsheba. So David on the couch notices the wife of one of his best friends who doesn't have any children and isn't pregnant, and she's beautiful. And when he finds out that he was, in fact, looking at Bathsheba, he decides that he still wants to take her. So he sends messengers again to bring her to the palace, and she comes to the palace, and he sleeps with her. He uses his power and his privilege to take what he wants. He's going through a horrible season in his life where he has totally lost God's perspective and purpose, and he's just taking whatever looks good and feels good, even if it's his best friend's wife. He sleeps with her, and she goes back. You can tell how David's treating her. She then sends word later that she's pregnant. Now, David has a problem because he knows the child is his because she wasn't pregnant. And the messengers that have been going back and forth and doing David's bidding also know that she was not pregnant, but now she is. Because David is not handling the matter one-on-one. He's using other people. So Bathsheba is pregnant, the wife of his best friend. And what comes out of the text is this question, like, what is going to happen? Because David is a figure that is so important. Many of you maybe have heard of King David. He's the one that slayed Goliath. He was the overlooked son that was anointed king and chosen by God to be king. He was the one that was running in the wilderness and praying, and he wrote the Psalms, and he has deep faith. And yet, look what has become of him. He's chosen security and comfort and leisure He slept with his wife's best friend, and now she's pregnant with his child. And you begin to think, what's going to happen? Because David is the one carrying the prophetic blessing. We've been talking about this blessing that's gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. It's gone from to Leah to Judah to Ruth and, and Boaz. And now that blessing is on David because he's from the line of Judah. Upon his shoulders, upon his lineage is going to be the one that will be the blessing to all the nations, the prophesied Messiah. But David's made a mess of things. What's going to happen next? David shows us exactly what's going to happen next in the coming chapters. And that chapter, chapter 11, ends with this statement that's very obvious and makes you even more fearful of what's going to transpire. And it has this very simple verse. It says, but the thing that David has done displeased the Lord. You're like, yes, I agree. It displeased the Lord. So David has now a wife, not a wife, a mistress, and she's pregnant. 
What's going to happen to Bathsheba? Well, David decides that he must cover up his sin. He needs to hide. You're going to notice something. David is following the pattern of the garden. He's choosing comfort. He's choosing himself. He's selfish. He looks at something that looks good, and he takes it. It's forbidden because it's someone else's wife, and yet he follows the pattern of the garden. He takes the thing that looks good, and then when his foolishness and his shame is exposed, he decides to cover it up. He decides to hide, to make it look like he didn't really do anything, just like Adam and Eve in the garden when they covered up to hide from their shame and their sin. David does the same thing, so he sends word, again, he's using other people, to Joab, the general of his army. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Uriah, my friend, and I want you to put him on the front lines. No great warrior, especially a mighty man, would go to the front lines. It's the most dangerous place in battle, for that is the place that you are almost guaranteed certain death. So Uriah goes, and he follows the king's order, and he's killed. This is murder. David gets word that Uriah has died He pretends to care. Bathsheba is mourning. She's broken over the fact that her husband, that she loved, is dead. David gives it about one day for her to lament. And then he plays the card of protector of this newfound widow, and he marries Bathsheba because that was his plan all along because he wanted to marry her as soon as possible so that people would believe that the child she was bearing was his. Look at David. His be- one of his best friends died in battle and he saw his wife that was widowed and he saw how distraught and vulnerable and sad and despairing she was and David came in to marry her and show her love and bring her into his family and now they have a child. Wanted to cover it up. What's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to Bathsheba? Well, there's three things that are the result of all of this and I kind of summarize them like this. One is family pain, two is continued blessing, and three is dysfunction. The first thing that happens, because the things that David is doing have displeased the Lord, no duh, is that the child that David has with Bathsheba, the child passes away. And there's deep pain for David and for Bathsheba, and it really awakens David to the despair that he is going through. And the the state of his condition and his decisions and his foolishness. And what happens is when you begin to think about this, you think, okay, well, what's going to happen to Bathsheba now? Because David doesn't care about Bathsheba. He's demonstrated that. He doesn't love her. He's trying to protect himself. So now that the child has passed away, is Bathsheba going to remain in the king's house? David chooses to stay married to her, and they have several more children. It's amazing what God does from this brokenness, from this despair, and from this sin. You see the continued blessing of God. Because Bathsheba will have several children with David, and one of them is a man by the name of Solomon. Bathsheba and David give birth to Solomon. The wisest man to ever walk the earth, except for Jesus, the one who's given the honor of building the temple of God, and the very next king of Israel. The prophetic line that is on David is going to be passed down through Bathsheba, placed upon Solomon. Isn't that amazing? God is taking the pain and the brokenness that we see in David's life. 
And he's working to honor and care for not only David, but Bathsheba as well to give this blessing that will go on from generation to generation because from Solomon one day will come, what's the answer in church? Jesus. But just because there's pain in the beginning and then there's this continued blessing that God keeps working in David and Bathsheba's life, even past their death, there's great dysfunction in the middle. And that's true of our lives, right? If you think about your life, you may think back on times where you've gone through deep pain, whether it was pain that you caused through your actions or pain that was inflicted upon you. All of us in this room have felt and been in places where we feel like we were acting like David or we feel like Bathsheba, or we were used or we were hurt. And from that pain, God has promised to work continued blessings in our lives. The book of Romans says that God is going to work all things for good, the positive things, the negative things, the hard things, the trauma, the success, all of it's going to be worked for good. God has promised that from our points of pain, he's going to work continued blessing in our life. In fact, it's an eternal blessing that he's given us. But in the midst of the blessing and the pain, there's also something, and that's dysfunction. Anybody else here in the room resonate with feeling dysfunctional at times? We're dysfunctional people. We're broken people. Our, our friendships are dysfunctional. Our families are dysfunctional. Our churches are dysfunctional. Sorry if you're new. It's, it's true. Our city is dysfunctional. We're dysfunctional people. And so between the pain of David and Bathsheba and then the continued blessing that God is going to work, there's a lot of dysfunction because when David is at the very end of his life in First and Second Kings, he's thinking about who he's going to pass the blessing on to. And the oldest son thinks, it's got to be me. I'm the oldest son. And so he gets Joab, his general, and he's like, you're on my team, right? So he forms this leadership around him. He does a marketing campaign in the streets to say, hey, I'm the next king. And he's almost ready to be crowned king. But then Bathsheba conspires with the prophet Nathan and says, hey, listen, let's go to David and let's remind him that he's supposed to anoint Solomon king. So they come in and they remind David that he said that he was going to make Solomon king. And David, as he's frail and dying, he says, oh yeah, 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 you're right. And he makes Solomon king through deception. You know what happens after that? Not good things. Bloodshed, family fallout, war, brothers killing each other. It gets really, really bad. It's like a movie that you don't want to watch. Dysfunction. And then Solomon, this great king from David and Bathsheba, he's not too great either. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he pursues wealth and power throughout his life. Now you may be thinking right now, hey pastor, when are you going to land the plane here? This is supposed to be a sermon, not a history lesson. Here's why I'm telling you this. I want you to feel the truth of this story. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it does not paint everything as perfect. It shows people for who they are, and God works in the mess of people. And it is true of David and Bathsheba and Solomon and every single person you read about. So you look into the life of David, and you see this man who has murdered his best friend. He slept with his best friend's wife. He sought to cover up his tracks so that he could present himself as the, the savior and the hero. And there's this description given about David, who has had some great successes in his life, but some obviously great failures. There's this description that says this, David 
is a man, what's, what does it say next? After God's own heart. David is a man after God's own heart. I want to tell you a very brief story about someone that I know. So I've heard this story from a friend of mine, and it's about this man, and he's a very successful CEO. He's built a great company, worked really, really hard. I mean, when we were all watching Netflix, he was building his company. And he built this really great empire. It was a social media app, and he built it, and he began to gather, you know, all types of employees. He grew it up to about 100, 125 employees. It was a multi, multi-million dollar company looking to get bought out by a Fortune 400 company. And as he was building his company, one of the things that was remarkable about him is not just that he was working hard and he was dedicated, but that he led people well. He was loved by his coworkers. He was loved by his staff. And he began to gain influence in different spaces. People saw him as a person of influence. He was on the cover of some of those magazines like 30 Under 30 and, you know, the up-and-coming tech entrepreneurs. And he was a person that was charitable and caring and had influence. He was also a family man, and it was kind of a shock because he had six kids. But then he went through this change as he was nearing 40 to 42 years old, he went through this change, and he began to act not like himself. He started no longer to take responsibility for himself and lead well and carry his purpose well. He started to just kind of delegate to other people without kind of giving them clarity, and he was kind of resorting back to this kind of midlife crisis where he just wants to take things that look good and do things that feel good, and people were looking at his life and saying, like, this is not you. What is going on? Why are you acting like this? We're like, oh, he's maybe going through a midlife crisis. Then, as this kind of goes on, he begins to notice one of his best friend's wives. And he notices that he, she's beautiful to him. He conspires with her, talks with her, uses his influence and his charm and brings her over to his house and sleeps with her. She then, a couple days later, tells him that she's pregnant. And she says she's going to keep the child. He's panicked. Because he's like, my business is going to get destroyed. My influence is going to get destroyed. My family is going to be destroyed because of what I've done. And so here's what he does. (laughs) He decides that the only way that he can cover up his tracks is if he hires a hitman to kill his best friend. He pays $15,000, and he hires a hitman to kill his best friend. And he's successful. He then paints a story that his family is dysfunctional, and there's a problem, and so he breaks off his marriage, and he goes and he marries this woman that he has slept with, his mistress, who's now pregnant. So it looks like the child has come from their marriage. And I'm going to tell you something about this man. He's a man after God's own heart. Does that feel weird? I just told you the story of David. He's a man after God's own heart. That's not a friend I know, don't worry. Okay, I was all made up. (laughs) But I want you to feel that. Here's why. It is shocking to read that statement that David is a man after God's own heart. And the reason I want you to feel that is because I want you to see the power of ancestry. 
Because David is included in this prophetic line, this line of blessing. This man is a man after God's own heart. This man is going to be the one through whom the child that he has with Bathsheba and so on and so forth will bring about the savior of the world. The one that we are celebrating here tonight. The child born on Christmas Day. It's power and ancestry. Many of us know this because some of us have ancestors that are a source of pride. Some of us have ancestors that are maybe a source of shame. If you have ancestors that have done have have made positive effects on the world, you're going to tell everybody about it. And if you have ancestors that have made a profoundly negative effect on the world, you're not going to tell anybody about it. In fact, in our country, there are some names that carry great weight because of the history of the people that have bared those names. Dr. King, that name carries weight. The Kennedys, the Ford family, for my American football fans, the Manning family. These names carry power, they carry weight because of the effect that they've had. And what's happened in the past decade or two is there's been this rise among all of us in the broader culture to know our ancestors. Ancestry.com, 23andMe, many of us want to know the countries that we're from, the places that represent us, the cultures that represent us. We want to discover some of the stories that maybe we've never known because some of us don't know our ancestry. We don't know the stories and the history, but we want to know because we feel as if the people before us some way represent us, their stories, their life, their decisions, that we're in that line. And it's no different for the people of Scripture. The Jewish culture, in fact, held, held ancestry to an extremely high regard. Here's how it worked. They would take their ancestors and they would carefully curate who's in the family tree. So if you made some poor decisions, you'd be removed. And if you did some great things, you're added in the family. Because your lineage would say something about you. So when people wanted to know your story and who you are and what you represent, you'd say, well, here are my ancestors. And you'd carefully curate who you place there. Additionally, and unfortunately, thousands of years ago, among all the cultures, you would not put women in your ancestry. It was only the men that did successful or impressive things. We get to Matthew chapter 1, the very first book of the New Testament, and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience who understands the power and the importance of ancestry. And his goal in Matthew is to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, that he's Emmanuel, God with us, That the one born in Bethlehem is the one that was born to save. And he starts with the ancestry of Jesus. And when you read it, a lot of things jump out. The first thing that jumps out is that Jesus has women included in his ancestry. Now this was improper. People would not put, as I said, women in their ancestry, especially people of importance, So if you were looking to be a king or you're a prophet or you're a priest, let alone the Messiah that's been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, you would not put women in your ancestry, in your family tree. But Jesus is improper, friends. He's prophetic. He's not proper. 
He's not trying to fit in the social customs and norms. He's prophetic, and his genealogy is prophetically sharing with you and with me and that audience that it was written to exactly who he is and who he's come to save. And do you want to know who Jesus is and who he's come to save? People who would be excluded from family trees. Let me tell you some of the people that are in Jesus' family tree. Just a few of them. Jacob, he's a deceiver and he's greedy. Judah, he's unmerciful and sexually unrestrained. Tamar, she will do whatever it takes to get what she wants. Rahab, she's a prostitute. Ruth, she's discriminated against because she's an immigrant and raised under a different religion. David, he's an adulterer and a murderer. Bathsheba, she will do whatever for her kids, even destroy the truth. Solomon, He's a glutton for sex and wealth, and the list goes on. These are just a few of the people that represent Jesus. When Jesus wants people to know, hey, who are you? And who are your ancestors? Here they are. Men and women that are broken and messy and discriminated against and given labels and given judgments. Jesus' genealogy does not filter out gender, it doesn't filter out status, it doesn't filter out any kind of discriminatory things. In fact, Jesus' genealogy is full of people that would be labeled sinners, and these are people that are after God's own heart. I want you to hear this, and this is why I want you to know, regardless of the baggage that you claim, regardless of the things that you've done in your life, the mistakes that you made, or the things that have happened to you, and the pain of your story, the dysfunction in your life. You are a source of pride for Jesus, not shame. By faith through grace, you are Jesus' pride, not his shame. You're included in his family. You may say, Pastor, but you don't know me. I'm a deceiver. I'm greedy. I will run over people for my own gain. I'm a glutton for wealth. I've made a lot of sexual mistakes. I've committed adultery. I say, get in line with Jesus' family tree. You fit right in. You see, Jesus is not validating the dysfunction and the pain that we have or the mistakes that we made, but he's saying, you're welcome. I welcome you. You are my pride. You are not a source of shame for me. You know, one of my favorite Christmas movies is A Christmas Carol. Anybody else like that movie? There's a guy in there. We got a couple Scrooges, it sounds like, in the room that don't like Christmas Carol. But Christmas Carol, you know, Scrooge hates Christmas, and he gets visited to help him, you know, to bring about his redemption so he'll love Christmas. And the first person that visits him is the ghost of what? Christmas past. And the ghost of Christmas past has this bright, shining head that's on, on fire and illuminates the truth of the past so that Scrooge might find redemption as he sees things that are true and not false. I was thinking about what we need this Christmas as we consider the power of Jesus' ancestry, that we are his pride and not his shame, that he was born to save people that are excluded or feel excluded. And here's my prayer. My prayer is that this Christmas, you would be visited by the Holy Ghost of Christmas past. I know it sounds corny, but I went with it, okay? The Holy Ghost of Christmas past. Because sometimes we leave the Holy Spirit out of Christmas. It's God the Father and the Son and the Spirit somewhere there, I don't know. 
But the Holy Spirit wants to visit you this Christmas and reveal to you the truth of who you are in Christ and how God sees you and your inclusion in his family. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, the Spirit is the one that's going to reveal to you tonight and throughout this Christmas season that you're included in Jesus' family tree. That you're included in his ancestry. That from your pain will be continued blessing despite the dysfunction that you go through and that you are Jesus' pride. One of the great Christmas songs, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, culminates with a prayer. And it culminates like this. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. My prayer is that tonight you would experience the Holy Spirit ruling in your heart, that God's love would be poured out into your heart, that despite your brokenness and dysfunction or the labels that you've received or you've placed on yourself, you would know that you're welcome in God's family tree, that by faith, because of God's grace, you're included, not excluded, that you're Jesus' pride and not his shame. And when you celebrate Christmas Eve, whether it's here with us or with another church, another family, if you travel, and when you wake up on Christmas morning, would you know that God loves you? It sounds so simple, friends, but it is so important. This is true of us, the very last line of a Christmas carol. It's so simple, but it's so true. Do you know what it says? God bless us, Everyone, I hope you know that God's blessing is upon you, every one of you, because Jesus was born to save and redeem. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we are grateful for you. This Christmas season can be about so many different things. Sometimes we get exhausted by all the things swirling and moving and happening around us. Sometimes, God, we feel the pressure to be positive and happy when there's deep sadness in us. Sometimes we get to this point of the year, we reflect upon the year, and we get down because we feel like we made big mistakes. We want to do better. So we struggle sometimes, God, to see the importance and the truth that this season and this time and this celebration that ends the year is meant to help us to reflect rightly and look forward knowing who we are. Yes, God, we have pain and you care for it. Yes, we are dysfunctional and you love us. So Holy Spirit, would you rule in our hearts tonight? Would you apply the love of God the Father into our heart? Would you make real the the truth that we are Jesus' pride? And would we worship and would we love and would we care and would we work from that place knowing that every one of us is blessed because that's what you were born to do, Jesus, to redeem and to bless through your life and your death and your resurrection. We love you, God. And we thank you that you love us. You're the greatest gift ever, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.